We'll turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We return this morning to our series in God's law. Oh, how I love your law. From Psalm 119. This psalm is teaching us how a Christian should think about God's law. The whole psalm is about God's law. And the psalmist loves God's law. He delights in it. So this morning, like every message in this series, we'll begin by looking at a section of verses from Psalm 119. This morning, that'll be verses 41 to 44. And then we'll zoom out and kind of take in the teaching of the Bible on another principle about God's law. So Psalm 119 itself is teaching us about God's law. We also want to zoom out and see what the rest of the Bible teaches us about his law too. And then we'll look at one particular case law that illustrates the principle that we've seen. And today's is a doozy, but you'll have to wait till the end. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 41 of Psalm 119. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually, forever and ever. Well, let's look closer at verse 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. So the psalmist here expresses his faith in God's promise. He asks God for his steadfast love and his salvation, but he's basing that on God's promise. So his faith is grounded in God's word, God's promise. If God hadn't promised this, he wouldn't be asking for it. It would be entirely presumptuous for him to ask this of God. But this isn't presumption, it's faith, because God has given his word. And the phrase that's translated here, your steadfast love, that's the Hebrew word chesed. It's a really important word in the Bible. It's God's gracious love, his loving kindness, his mercy, his steadfast love. It's a word that God uses quite often to describe himself to his people. For example, when Moses asked God to show him his glory, we're told the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, there's our word, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God has said this is who he is to his people. And now the psalmist asks God to show him that steadfast love and salvation. Now the psalmist doesn't ask because he deserves it. He asks because God has promised. He doesn't show mercy. God doesn't show mercy to us because he thinks we're good. God doesn't show mercy to us because he looks into the future and sees that we're going to do something good. The only good things that we will ever do are the things that are the fruit or the result of his mercy and grace in our lives. Instead, it's simply his mercy. It's his steadfast love. Now, some may wonder, is, is God's mercy big enough to handle my sin? Is it deep enough? Thomas Manton says, your sins are like a spark of fire that falls into the ocean. 
it is quenched presently. When God shows his mercy, his steadfast love to us, how should we respond? Well, we respond with gratitude and obedience. There's no greater incentive for us to obey God's law than that he has shown us his steadfast love. Here's how Paul says it in his letter to Titus. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So God's grace and mercy bring us salvation, and the result is that it trains us to live godly lives, to obey God's law. So the psalmist asks God for his steadfast love and salvation because God has promised it to his people in his word. Verse 42 continues the thought from verse 41. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Then, when? When the Lord shows him his steadfast love and salvation. When God does that, then the psalmist will have an answer for the one who taunts him. Now, why would someone taunt him? Well, quite simply, because he trusts in God, because he obeys God's law. There are two kinds of people in the world, or as God puts it in Genesis 3, two seeds. There's the seed of the woman, and there's the seed of the serpent, those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil. And there will always be war or conflict between them until the end. So we shouldn't be surprised when we face taunts like the psalmist did, or opposition, or mocking, or conflict, or persecution. Jesus said that would be the case. He said, blessed are you when men persecute you or revile you for my name's sake. Those who are of the flesh see with eyes of flesh. Those who are of the spirit see with spiritual sight through the eyes of faith. And the eyes of faith help us to trust the promise of God. God is entirely trustworthy. Whenever anyone, Christian or not, faces difficulty, they run to their gods for help. Whatever your God is, that's where you go. Think of the sailors on the ship in the story of Jonah. Uh, Jonah's boarding the ship to run away from God. When God sends the great storm on that ship, what do the sailors do? Well, they all called out to their gods. And of course, it didn't do them any good because their gods were not real. But it shows the tendency that we all have to run to our gods when we face distress. Well, here the psalmist turns to God in his distress and doing so will give him an answer for those who taught him because he trusts in God's word. The better we come to know God, the more we may rightly trust him. The better we come to know God, the more we may rightly trust him. Psalm 9, verses 9 and 10 tell us, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. You hear that? If you know who God is, then you'll trust him. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Well, verse 43 says, and take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. What is the psalmist getting at here? What does he mean by this, this phrase, asking God not to take his word out of his mouth? 
Matthew Henry paraphrases this verse to help us understand. So here's what he says. He means, Lord, let the word of truth be always in my mouth. Let me have the wisdom and courage which are necessary to enable me both to use my knowledge for the instruction of others and, like the good householder, to bring out of my treasury things new and old and to make profession of my faith whenever I am called to it. So he's asking for the wisdom to be able to speak the right words from God into each situation. And he's asking for the courage to speak it too. So Matthew Henry is connecting what the psalmist says here in Psalm 119 with what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 52. Jesus says, every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. A good steward of the house is ready to bring out exactly what is needed by the owner at any point. Now, that means that he's planned ahead. He has a supply ready to meet any eventuality. It means that he has the wisdom to read the situation and to know exactly what is needed. So Jesus is saying that a scribe that's trained for the kingdom of heaven is like that. He's been trained in God's word, God's law, so that he's ready for every situation. He has a supply of God's law that he knows and is, he's got it ready. And he has the wisdom to know just how to apply it, God's word, God's law, in each and every situation. Well, that's what the psalmist is saying here. He wants to always have the word of truth in his mouth, ready to speak wisdom into any situation. And just in case we are unclear about what aspect of God's word he means, the second part of the verse clears it up. My hope is in your rules. God's rules, God's laws, give him the wisdom needed for every situation. And not only does he want to have the wisdom, but he wants to have it in his mouth. In other words, he's ready to speak that wisdom. He won't be silent. He'll speak out. He'll proclaim it. We often have a tendency to be quiet, to not speak up when we could, in answer to those who taunt us or question us. But it's not enough for us only to believe the word in our hearts. We are also commanded to confess it with our mouths. That's Paul's summary of what Christianity actually is. He says in Romans 10, 9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Jesus warned his followers. He said, you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And the psalmist here, finding confidence in God's law, wants to be ready to speak up. In verse 44, then, we have words of commitment from the psalmist. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. And the emphasis here is that he wants to be consistent and thorough in keeping God's law. Look at the end of the verse. Continually, forever and ever. 
that's three different Hebrew words that are all kind of piled up to indicate that the obedience will go on and on. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce, commenting on how the psalmist piles up those words, says this, it's an effective way of saying that the psalmist's obedience is going to go on and on. There will never be a time when the godly stop obeying God. See, once you have lived as a Christian, if you were to go back and stop obeying God, to turn around and instead live in sin, according to Satan's desires, what would that say? Thomas Manton warns us that that would communicate to those who are watching, maybe those who in the previous verses were the taunters. It would communicate that when you have tried both, you do as it were deliberately judge that Satan's service is best. Or that you do not find in God that which he promised and you expected from him. In Jeremiah 2, the people have left God, and God says to them, he says, thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? Is God too hard to please? Does he not reward those who diligently seek and follow him? What wrong do you find in God that you would turn away from him? And the psalmist is determined that he will follow God's law continually, forever and ever. And that also means, if, if he's keeping God's law continually, that he doesn't take breaks from obedience. He obeys all day, in every area of life, not just some areas. Which part of life is it not important that you obey God's law? Is it important for you to obey God in your family life? in your personal life, in your civic life, in your community? Of course, in every area of life, continually. And this kind of obedience is actually what God says he longs for. Deuteronomy chapter 5, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. God doesn't take breaks from caring for us. His providential care for us is never ceasing. It's continual forever and ever. Shouldn't our obedience to him be the same? If we want God to be faithful to us to the end, shouldn't we be faithful to him to the end? So I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Well, as we go through this series in Psalm 119, each week we want to look not only at the psalm itself, but also to kind of widen out our view to consider what God teaches about his law in general. Psalm 119 is all about God's law, 176 verses that celebrate God's law, but there's much more about God's law for us to learn beyond this psalm too. And the principle that we want to focus in on this morning is this, lawlessness leads to autonomy. Now, I'll explain that in just a moment, but let me just start by noting this. That's not a good thing, okay? According to scripture, autonomy is not a good thing, and we'll see why. Now, as is often the case, it's helpful for us to kind of get started by taking our thinking all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, how did Adam and Eve know 
what they should do and what they shouldn't do. Did they come up with their own standard? Did they ask the animals for advice? No, they obeyed God's word. God spoke to them divine, special revelation, told them what to do and what not to do. They were to obey God's law. The fancy word for that is theonomy. Theos means God, namas means law, so it's just saying God's law is what rules. But then the serpent came with a temptation. Notice a couple of things that the serpent did. First, he questioned the goodness of God's law. He implied that God's motive was to keep Adam and Eve kind of subjugated, keep them obedient by not letting them see or understand everything. He wanted them to serve him rather than doing what would be best for them. That's what the serpent implies. And second, the serpent also questioned God's authority. He suggested that Eve should take this authority for herself. The serpent suggested that she should substitute her own judgment, her own standard, her own law in place of God's. When the serpent says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil, he doesn't simply mean that she will recognize good and evil, but rather that she will determine good and evil. She will declare what is good and evil. When Eve substituted her own law, her own standard, that's called autonomy. Auto means self, so autonomy is self-law. She replaced theonomy with autonomy. To operate autonomously is to be what we call having a law or being a law unto yourself. You think you can define good and evil according to your own reason. And there's many today, inside and outside the church, that operate this way. Paul says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The choice that all of us face is autonomy or theonomy. Whose law, whose standard will rule our lives? Now, we're going to talk about a number of things on the way to the case law this morning. But first of all, let me just give you three characteristics of God's law that will help us to understand why it is that, as our principle this morning says, lawlessness leads to autonomy. So three characteristics of God's law. First, God's law is autonomous. And that's a good thing. Now, this is the only place this morning where you will hear me refer to autonomy as a good thing. And it's only a good thing here because we're talking about God. God's law is rightly autonomous. God is a law unto himself. Why is that? Well, remember, God's eternal. He's not created by anyone. As the creator, he's also the ruler. He's in charge. So there's no one, no thing outside of God to which God is accountable. There's no standard outside of God that God has to measure up to. And what is God's law? God's law is the transcript of his character. It expresses who he is. If God is the highest standard and his law expresses who he is, then his law is the highest standard. It is autonomous. God is a law unto himself. 
when King Nebuchadnezzar had become arrogant and God stepped in and made him, you know, like a beast of the field. And so he's out in the field and he, you know, his fingernails grow and he's eating the grass out there and all that stuff. When that happens to Nebuchadnezzar, because he thought he was responsible for Babylon's greatness, God humbles him and then Nebuchadnezzar repents and he returns to God. You can read the story in Daniel chapter 4. But when Nebuchadnezzar became humble again, here's what he said. He said that God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? See, God's government, God's rule, God's law is autonomous. He does what is according to his will, and he always does what is right. And his law expresses that. So God's law is autonomous. Second, God's law is inescapable. Inescapable. The world is the way that God says it is. You can't change that. The laws with which God made the world to exist are laws. They are universally true. For example, Newton's first law of motion states that an object at rest remains at rest, and an object in motion remains in motion at a constant speed in a straight line unless acted on by an unbalanced force. We describe that as inertia. Now, if you wanted to ignore inertia, or if you wanted to deny inertia, could you? Would it work? Well, no, of course not. This is a big part of the success of YouTube. America's Funniest Videos depend on this law. How many crashes and flops and flips and accidents and injuries would never have happened if this law was optional? But it's not. It's universal. It's inescapable. Now, when did Newton's first law begin operating? Because Newton first published it in 1687. So is that when inertia got started? Well, no, of course not. God created the world with this law in place. It's part of the very fabric of the universe. And the same is true with God's moral law. It is inescapable. It is unavoidable. It is part of the very fabric of the universe. God created the world with his moral law in place. It never changes because God never changes. And it expresses God's character. Now, we haven't gotten to it yet in Psalm 119, but if you were to go down to verse 89, you would read this. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Just as firmly and surely as the physical laws of the universe that we depend on every day do not change, so God's law is fixed. It is inescapable and unchanging. So God's law is autonomous, it is inescapable, and third, it is ultimate. Why do we obey God's law? Is it because, well, I've examined God's law according to my ideals and principles and I find it acceptable? Is it because, well, we've subjected God's law to the rigors of the scientific method and the science has validated it? Is it because, well, we're practical and we find that God's law is what's most advantageous to us? 
If we're obeying God's law for any reason like that, we're completely missing the point. God's law is not subject to evaluation by some human standard. No, rather, God's law is the standard. It's ultimate because God is ultimate. So we don't stack God's law up against Greek philosophy and see what Socrates and Plato think of it to see whether or not it's valid. We don't lay God's law down alongside Disney's ideals to see whether following God's law will be following my heart. We don't subject God's law to the prevailing winds of diversity, equity, and inclusion to see if we will find it acceptable. No, God's law is itself the standard by which everything else is measured. God's law is ultimate. So if someone suggests some other ethical principle, some system of morality, how do we know if it's right? We measure it by the standard of God's law. Isaiah 45, 9 says, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. How ridiculous would it be for the clay to argue with the potter about what the potter is making? When the world suggests other ways of measuring what's right or wrong, what you should do or shouldn't do. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, let God be true though everyone were a liar. It doesn't matter what the world says, God's law is ultimate. That's where your allegiance lies as a son of God. Moses reminded the people as he neared his death that God's work is perfect for all his ways are justice a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. It's no surprise that the culture around us rejects God's law, but I'd like us to turn our attention this morning to ourselves for a few minutes. Let's consider the church's attitude toward God's law. Now, our principle this morning is that lawlessness leads to autonomy. And the word lawlessness is just a simpler version of the word antinomianism. Anti means against. Namas, we saw before, is law. So an anti-namas, antinomianism, is against God's law. Okay, so someone who is antinomian is in some way, shape, or form against God's law. They are lawless. And I want to show you this morning four ways that we in the church fall into the trap of lawlessness. Before I show you those four ways, I want to point out two main problems that are caused by lawlessness or antinomianism. And all four versions of lawlessness that we will look at in the church have these two faults, these two effects or problems associated with them. Okay, so quickly, two problems that are caused by antinomianism. First, a denial of Jesus' lordship. Jesus said that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But each of the versions of lawlessness will deny Jesus' lordship in some way. And second, the second problem is that when some form of lawlessness is embraced, God's people are left with no standard for ethical choices. 
How do we know what's right and wrong? When God's law is rejected or limited in some way, then to that extent, the church is left without a standard for moral choices. So lawlessness denies the absolute lordship of Jesus and it leaves us without a standard for ethical choices. Now let's look at the four ways in which the church falls into the trap of lawlessness. And to try to make this simple, I'm going to describe this as four ways that we limit God's law. Four ways we limit God's law. First, limiting God's law by time. By time. This would be what's called the dispensational view. This kind of lawlessness says that at the point in time where Jesus came, Jesus changed things so that we no longer need to obey God's law because we are now under grace. This view would say that the only Old Testament laws that we need to keep today are the ones that have been repeated in Scripture in the New Testament era, the current time period. Now, while it is true that we are no longer under the law and we are under grace, that's a misunderstanding of what the Bible's teaching there. To be under the law means to be subject to the penalty and curses of the law. And as Christians, we are no longer under the law. We are not subject to the penalties and curses of the law because Jesus has taken those penalties for us. But that doesn't mean that the law itself is done away with. We've seen in previous weeks that Jesus said when he came that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus specifically tells us he's not doing away with the law. In fact, he makes it super clear by saying that the least little detail of the law, the smallest little punctuation mark, will not be done away with. So, This approach to limiting God's law by time, since we're in the New Testament time period now, is wrong-headed. This view sees God's law as having changed for this era of time. Now, if God's law has changed, it's either implying that God has changed or that his law didn't really reflect his character. Otherwise, how could the law itself change? This view also tends to see the Old Testament ceremonial and civil laws as not applying to this time period, but they will come back someday, but only for the Jewish people. And that completely misses the New Testament teaching that shows how those ceremonial laws in the Old Testament were pointing forward to Jesus, and those laws find their present and future fulfillment in him. This view also runs into trouble when you read the New Testament and you see writers like Paul or Peter using the Old Testament law to reason about ethics in the New Testament. That's the standard that the New Testament writers use. They go back to the Old Testament law and use that to determine what should be happening. But this view says that doesn't apply for the church in this time period. Now, A second way that we limit God's law in the church is limiting God's law by category. Limiting it by category. This approach is similar to the last one, but it focuses on the categories of the law. So there's the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. And since we are not the nation of Israel, this view argues, 
the civil and ceremonial laws have no application for us today. Only the moral law remains. So the law to not murder still applies because that's the moral law, the Ten Commandments. But the civil law gives us the penalties for murder. So what do we do with that? Well, this view would say, since that's the civil law, that doesn't apply today, and we are left with a kinder, gentler version of the moral law. While this view doesn't see the ceremonial laws returning in the future, like the last view does, it does see them as essentially irrelevant for us today, since Jesus has come. Now, because we've, on these first two views, talked about that idea of the ceremonial law, let me just, as an aside, ask and answer the question briefly, how should we think about the ceremonial law? Is it still in force today? And I would argue that, rightly understood, it is still in force today. And here's what I mean by that. An Old Testament believer was commanded to bring a sacrifice, just for the sake of example, we'll say a lamb. In order to approach God, he sacrificed a lamb. That lamb pointed forward to Jesus. Now, the lamb itself could never take away sins like Jesus did. That wasn't the point. From the beginning, it was about Jesus. So the purpose of the law about sacrificing lambs was to show that the believer was coming to God in the manner prescribed by God, which is always and only through Jesus. He may not have known the name of Jesus like we do. He may not have known the details of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross like we do. But obedience to that law meant he was coming to God through God's prescribed means, which is Jesus. Now, how do we keep that law today? Do we sacrifice lambs? Well, no, we don't. In order to keep that same law today, we come to God through Jesus. We have faith in the sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf. The outward form of obedience has changed, which is exactly what the law intended all along. So being faithful to that law today means obedience in the form the law was pointing to. If I were to make a lamb sacrifice today, what would that say? What would it say about Jesus? It would be saying that what Jesus did was insufficient or ineffective. I would be violating the law about how to come to God. But when I come through faith in Jesus, I am keeping that law. It's not that the law, in the sense of being part of the very fabric of the universe that God has created, about how we come to God, it's not that that law has been done away with. It's that the coming of Jesus has transformed the way we keep that law. The law itself remains valid, but I keep that law by faith in Jesus. It's not that it's irrelevant today. That's what Paul's getting at when he says, regarding being justified by faith. In Romans 3, 31, he says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. He says, on the contrary, we uphold the law. So 
when I come to Jesus by faith, Paul says, I'm upholding the law. The Old Testament believer kept that law by faith, expressed in a lamb sacrifice. The New Testament believer keeps that same law by faith, expressed by faith in Jesus' sacrifice. So this view that limits God's law by category ends up with some of the same problems as the last view. Jesus' lordship is limited to the moral law, and it becomes difficult to see how that applies to most of the regular activities of life, as long as you're not murdering someone or stealing from them, for example. It fails to give us much help in making moral choices. But it also fails to help us know what to do with vast sections of the Old Testament, because they're treated as simply irrelevant for us. Now, I'm not saying that we keep those laws in the same way. What I am saying is, what was underneath those laws, the way that God designed the world, that the, the, what those laws were expressing remains unchanged. We keep those same laws today, though the outward form of it has changed. A third kind of lawlessness in the church is when we limit God's law by realm. By realm. This view says there's two kingdoms in the world. God's kingdom, the church, and the kingdom of this world, the secular kingdom. On this view, God's law applies only in the church, not in the world. So the church is ordered according to God's law, but we should never expect God's law to have any impact in the rest of the world. Now, you might hear this referred to today as the Reformed Two Kingdoms view, or R2K, and I am admittedly oversimplifying this morning. They would say their view is more nuanced than what I'm describing, but I'm trying to give you just a blunt, basic understanding of how this view works itself out practically in real life. And the problems with this view are big. First of all, Jesus' lordship is very limited. When Jesus said he had all authority, he must have only meant in the church. Second, if God's law doesn't apply in the world, then by what standard do we determine right and wrong? How should we expect the state to function? What about business ethics, if God's law doesn't apply to those areas? So all of these things, in their view, are left to the realm of what's called natural law, which is supposedly the natural understanding of right and wrong that is common to all men. But look around. Please tell me, what is the common, agreed-upon standard of right and wrong? Today, it must be something along the lines of do whatever the heck you want and don't get in the way of anyone else doing what they want. That's about the only natural law that we all agree on in our culture today, it seems. Now, it would be one thing if everybody lived on their own desert island and with that worldview and they could just do their own thing. But as soon as what I want butts up against what you want, we've got a problem. And we have to have a standard by which to measure what we're going to do. And we must have an authority that is empowered to enforce it. See, this view also just leaves the church living in a shell. The church just has to retreat to its own little space, do its own thing according to its own rules, and just hope that the rest of the world doesn't intrude. 
And it leaves us with absolutely no standing to speak into the culture and say that anything is right or wrong. The fourth and final kind of lawlessness in the church today is that we limit God's law by reason, by human reason. This view operates under the guise of being led by the Holy Spirit. So we say that since we have the Spirit of God in us, he leads us to understand what obedience to God looks like. Because we don't know what to do with certain laws, like don't eat shellfish or don't wear clothes of mixed fibers, we conclude that lots of these laws simply must not apply anymore today. Now, how do we know which ones? We simply do what makes sense to us, presumably being led by the Spirit. So this is like a buffet approach to God's law. Well, this law makes sense to me, so I'll put that on my plate. I don't understand that one, so we're not going to do that one. And you go down the buffet line of God's law, and you make a collection of laws that, mean, that make sense to you according to your reason, and that's how you're going to obey God's law. But at the end of the day, that's pure autonomy. I'm just being my own law. And you can see that because when I go down the buffet line of God's law, and another Christian goes down the line on the other side, our plates are not the same at the end. I took what made sense to me, he took what made sense to him, but we're really just each being our own law. God's not schizophrenic. God is one. He's eternal, he's unchanging, he's consistent. His law does not change. So the buffet line approach is flawed as the same kind of results as these other versions of lawlessness. And it's precisely what Satan tempted Eve with in the garden. You will be like God, knowing good and evil for yourself. So let me offer a few thoughts about what we've seen here about lawlessness in the church before we take a brief look at one case law to illustrate. There's two consistent problems that we've seen that result from limiting God's law in the church. First, it denies Jesus' lordship in some way. Some views say Jesus is Lord in the church, but not in the world. Others say Jesus is Lord in some areas of life, but not others. But any kind of lawlessness or antinomianism will deny Jesus' lordship in some way. What that means then is that wherever Jesus is not Lord, that authority gets turned over to someone else. If there's some realm or area where Jesus is not Lord, then someone else will be. It'll be autonomy, where men are a law unto themselves, or as we see in our day, it'll be the state that assumes that authority. The state takes authority that does not belong to it, and the church goes along with it because we don't believe what Jesus said. We don't believe that all authority has been given to him. And so the church is guilty of aiding and abetting the rebellious grasping of authority by the state. And the second problem we saw is that limiting God's law in the church means we're left with no ethical standard for choices. If we sit as judge over God's law, picking and choosing from the buffet line which laws we think should be valid, who's to say that the unbeliever can't do the same thing? And we are left with no standing from which to say, thus saith the Lord. We have no means by which to say, this is right and that is wrong. And if God's law applies only in the church, then we're dooming the state to be cursed by God. Is abortion wrong? 
if God's law applies only in the church, then we have no platform from which to argue that abortion should be outlawed. Now, of course, the two kingdoms, Christian will argue, but natural law teaches us that abortion is wrong. So we can outlaw, outlaw abortion without relying on God's law in his word. Really? Read some history. Do you not see what's happening in our culture? Why is abortion still here if it's so obvious from natural law? Lawlessness in the church leaves the church speechless in the culture. Lawlessness in the church leaves the church speechless in the culture. We have nothing to say if God's law is not valid today. We have no way to argue for morality in the world. We're left silent and impotent in the world if God's law is limited in the church. All right, now, let me give you a case law example this morning that will illustrate what we've been talking about. And... um, It's not a comfortable one. I'm going to do my best to be tasteful but clear. Here's the moral dilemma we'll ask. Is zoophilia, or bestiality, morally permissible? Leviticus 18.23 says, You shall not lie with any animal, and so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. You can see the same law in Leviticus 20, verse 15. Deuteronomy 27, verse 21, not a comfortable topic, I know, but I'm using it for a couple of reasons. First of all, it illustrates our principle this morning. Second, this is increasingly becoming an issue in our culture. If you think that this is simply a a fringe topic that we shouldn't even be talking about, we don't need to bother with it, let me tell you, you're wrong. Okay, and here's two proofs of that. First proof is this. The Old Testament actually deals with the topic. It gives us a law. In other words, God said, this is something we need to talk about. I need to tell you about this. God wouldn't give us the law if it was irrelevant and unneeded. All scripture is profitable for us, including laws about bestiality. If we're going to preach the whole counsel of God, then we need to deal with even the uncomfortable topics. And by the way, we've had people leave our church in part because we deal with the hard, uncomfortable topics. But I want to be clear, in this church, we will deal with all of Scripture. We're not going to pick and choose which parts we like to talk about. That authority hasn't been given to us. The second proof, though, that we need to deal with topics like this is simply look around at the trajectory of our culture. Ten years ago, would you have thought that transgenderism would be being pushed and normalized the way it is today, and that we'd be having drag queen story hour in the city of Wadsworth. Of course you wouldn't. And what's next? Well, the next two things on the sexual perversion list, things you can expect to be seeing in the media, in the courts, in the schools, in the very near future, are pedophilia and zoophilia. Children love, animal love. You'll be hearing about minor attracted persons, and it's going to be normalized. They're going to be pushing it. Just last month, the UN report on principles for a human rights-based approach to criminal law came out on March 8th. Principle 16, 
starts the ball rolling in the acceptance of pedophilia. Don't have time to go into that this morning. It's not what we're focused on. But close on the heels of that will be animal-attracted persons. And if you don't believe me, just consider this. The lower house of the Spanish parliament recently approved an animal welfare law which decriminalizes bestiality as long as it doesn't result in the animal needing veterinary care. No longer a crime. This was pushed by Spain's Minister of Social Rights and 2030 Agenda. Think about that. What social rights are being affirmed in that move? And what's the 2030 Agenda? That's from the World Economic Forum. It's usually spoken of as a climate-related agenda, but the reality is underneath it, it's much broader. It's intended to undermine traditional family and economic values. It's not just Spain. Look at this map. The countries in red are those where bestiality is criminalized with a punishment of prison. The blue is where it's legal. The other colors are various levels of punishment, and the gray is where we don't know. Let me just tell you, there's way too much blue on that map, and some of that blue is in our country. It is relevant. How would you, as a Christian, argue against zoophilia or bestiality today? See, the problem is the New Testament is completely silent on this issue. In the Old Testament, it's clearly against God's law. How should the church view this today, though? Well, think through with me the various kinds of lawlessness in the church that we spoke of. First, if you limit God's law by time, saying that the Old Testament ceremonial and civil laws don't apply for this time period, then you've got nothing. The New Testament doesn't speak to this issue, so what do you do? By what standard will you say that it's wrong? Secondly, if you limit God's law by category and you say that only the moral law, the Ten Commandments, apply today, you've still got nothing to stand on. The Old Testament against bestiality is part of the civil code. So if you've said that category isn't applicable today, what do you do? Let me share with you a paragraph from an article on the Gospel Coalition website by Andrew Walker arguing about this. And he says, well, this is why God has given a natural law which predates the Mosaic Covenant and offers a better foundation for morality without that covenant's specificity. We don't need Israel's civil law to inform us that such things as murder or bestiality are wrong. The covenant of creation, medi mediated through natural revelation, tells us this. I want to say, yikes. Uh, do you hear what he says there? Natural law offers a better foundation for morality than God's specific revelation given in his word? So we don't need God's revealed law to tell us that bestiality is wrong because we all already agree that it's wrong. But here's the thing. We clearly don't agree. You saw the map. And... Walker sees some sort of disconnect or disagreement between the Mosaic law and the natural law, and he prefers the natural law. So did God get the Mosaic law wrong? 
Because he's saying the natural law gives us a better foundation for morality. By what standard will we judge? Natural law, and, and I am not opposed to natural law, rightly understood. If, if natural law is the reality of the world as God has created it, the morality which he has embedded in this world, I'm all in favor of it, and it'll be 100% without exception in agreement with God's revealed law. Natural law only works under two conditions. Number one, that it's agreed on. And number two, that it speaks the same morality and ethics as God's revealed law. So first of all, there's not agreement on this issue. And second, why reject God's revealed law and then hope that natural law will lead us to the same conclusion that God's revealed law had already given? Third, if we limit God's law by realm, then we have no room to speak against bestiality or zoophilia in the world because we're only concerned with God's law in the church. Sure, we can outlaw it in the church, but we have nothing to say to society because that's not God's kingdom, according to this view. And you can see how that approach leaves the church utterly impotent and irrelevant in the world. And fourth, if the church limits God's law by reason, then we're back to the same problem we had with natural law. What if we don't all agree? And we have no reason to adopt the Old Testament law about bestiality for today, except that it seems to make sense to us but what if it doesn't make sense to the next guy? My reason, my human reason, is no more valid than his unless there's an outside source that we can measure by. Thankfully, God has given us that outside source. God's law is the standard. His law is autonomous. It doesn't depend on man, but on God himself alone. His law is inescapable. When we violate his law, there will be consequences, whether it's an individual or a society. And his law is ultimate. It is the final standard by which all other standards are measured. See, on our own, we can't meet that standard. We are lawbreakers. And so our hope is not in keeping God's law in order to gain God's favor. Rather, our hope is in the one who has kept God's law for us, Jesus. He has taken the law's penalty on himself, so we are no longer under the curse of the law. If we've been saved by grace through faith, then we are freed to obey God's law from the heart, to keep his law out of gratitude for our Savior, to live as he intends us to, to flourish in this life because we're living according to his law. We're living the, according to the way he's designed the universe to be. The psalmist in Psalm 119 loves God's law. We saw this morning that he trusts in it. He hopes in it. God brings him salvation and steadfast love according to his law. And the psalmist is committed to keeping his law continually forever and ever. Lawlessness leads to autonomy, and that's a bad thing. We don't want to ignore or limit God's law, but rather to embrace it. 
God has graciously given us his law. It reveals his character to us. It shows us how to live in this world that he's created. The world that operates inescapably according to that law. May we, like the psalmist, learn to love God's law. Let's pray. Lord, you truly are good and your word is good. Your law is good. If only we would embrace it and live according to it. I pray that you would give us as your people confidence in your word, like what we read from the psalmist this morning. I pray that that you would not take your word out of our mouth, that instead we would be ready to speak, that we would be prepared with an answer when those taunts come, when the questions come, that we would be ready to speak wisdom into the situation because we are full, filled up with your word. May we love your word and delight in it. May we live according to it and in doing so, find blessing. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.